Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Uh, the big thing this week is DC Fandom. Um, for those that aren't aware, this is Comic-Con was a bit of a disaster this year. No one was really there. Um, well, nobody was there because it wasn't. It was Comic Con at home, so everyone was at home. Um, but DC Comics and all their films—they weren't there. Um, they didn't have any panels because they are doing their own uh, conference sort of thing, uh, and that's DC Fandom. That is on tomorrow, August the twenty-second, the twenty-second of August is probably the way that I would say it, and it's going to be a twenty-four hour thing. They've got. They haven't just got film stuff, they've got TV stuff, they've got comic stuff, they've got game stuff, they've got all sorts of stuff. Um, but there's a couple, I've looked into it and there's a, because I'm like, I'm quite excited for this. I'm, a, I'm kind of, kind of hyped. Um, and I, yeah, I've looked into it. You have to like log in and sign up and have like to, to do it, it to watch it, which is fine. Um, and it. In doing that, it means that you can set up uh, like a personal schedule, so then it will come up whenever you're like whatever. Because like you don't maybe you don't want to hear about the TV shows because I don't watch many. I'm like behind or I haven't watched the TV shows, so um, I don't want to hear about all that stuff. I want to hear about the film stuff. Want to hear about the game stuff. So I put them on my schedule, and then it will tell me when they're up, so I don't have to keep going back and forth. I don't really. I enjoy the comics, but I'm not really a big reader, so I, I probably won't be watching that stuff. But I think it's really good the way that they've done it in terms of kind of being able to make your own schedule. Um, and they've got all the times to change for your region. So you don't have to like look up like, oh, what time is this going to be in, in Australia or whatever, um, or in England. Um, and another thing that they're doing is they're doing... So it is an only 24-hour thing. Like, they're not going to stay on there. But because, obviously you might not be able to see those uh, the panels that you want at the specific times that they're on. They're doing like encores. It's like a few hours late. So like once it's all done, they're basically starting the whole thing again. I think they're doing like three lots of it. So you'll be able to watch it at a reasonable time, no matter what time zone you're in, which I think is really good. I mean, I'm probably going to stay up because I think it start, the first lot for me starts at 6 p.m. in the evening and then it runs through... I think the Batman is the last panel and that's like half one in the morning. So I might just stay up and watch them all then rather than kind of watching part of it and then watching the rest of the day after. I think I might just watch it all in one go while I'm in the moment and in the hype. But yeah, the the in terms of film stuff, they've got a Wonder Woman 84 panel. They've got the Suicide Squad. They're going to get the cast out and hopefully get some more characters. Um, they've got, obviously, like I said, the Batman. Uh, there's going to be some stuff about that. Uh, Black Adam with The Rock in it. Uh, Shazam, just talking about the film Shazam and potential sequel. Uh, Aquaman, same thing. Uh, and the Snyder Cut, which is going to be a huge thing. Because obviously the Snyder Cut of Justice League is coming out next year. There's been some hoo-ha about it recently in terms of maybe Joss Whedon maybe isn't the greatest guy on set, but uh, who knows. Um, well, hopefully... We've seen, we've seen some little snippets and pieces. We've seen Black Suit, Superman that everyone was calling for. So, yeah, I'm just I'm excited to see all of this stuff. Because I, I like this stuff. And the Marvel Marvel have been killing it for the past 10 years. And I want DC to be on the same same field. Because DC's great too. I'm not really one or the other. And I think it, it's really good to see them. It'd be good to see them both kind of vying for the, the box office. Because 
competition breeds uh it just breeds for better stuff and so everybody wins from all that so DC do better than Marvel will in turn have to do better and you just get better and better films and I uh it's just it's just good stuff all around um I'm also excited to see some of the TV things that I have caught up with and the video game stuff because we get to see Rocksteady's new game which looks to be Suicide Squad um uh, they did all the they did the Arkham games. Uh, they did Arkham Asylum, City, and Night, and then Warner Brothers Montreal. They did Arkham Origins, which controversially might actually be my favourite Arkham game. Um, they're they they're announcing what game they're doing. So, ooh, gonna have some good game things coming as well, which I'm also massively excited for because I've been waiting for five years for news on anything to do with the Arkham series or anything from either of those studios. Uh, in fact, it's been seven years since Warner, Bro Mon Warner Brothers Montreal have done anything. So, I mean, it's oh, just built up tension and hype and it's going to be great. So, massively looking forward to that. Hopefully, you will too. I'll probably have some news on that next week. <laughs> into it uh with section one uh, section one section a everybody paying attention um in fact this isn't section a it's section o of alpha set uh alpha set is where i look at three films uh that i've never seen before three films that begin with the same letter of the alphabet this week it's o and uh yeah we'll just i'll do i'll do a little bit of non-spoilery uh non-spoilery talk about it and uh, see what i see what you think about it um, so the first film to kick us off this week is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, this is about a semi-washed-up actor, famous for a Western show in the 50s, and his stuntman trying to negotiate Hollywood in the late 1960s while also getting caught up with a cult. It's got... Let's do some uh, numbers. I know It came out last year in 2019. I normally get the... Uh, get the... Uh, What's the, what's the word? The budget in the, the box office, but I seem to have uh, waylaid that. It's been a bit of... I've just come back off holiday. It's been a bit of a, a rush to get this all sorted, but I will uh, endeavour to... Oh, wait. Give me one second. In, in your time, it will be one second, but for me, it is longer than that, but I will be able to get the information. We can do it! Okay, we got it. We got it, we got it, we got it. Um, so, this had a budget of $90 million, and it made $374 million, so it has made a fair chunk of money for Sony Pictures Entertainment, who actually, uh, who made this, apparently. Uh, but yeah, um, in terms of other stats, uh, it's got a 7.7 .7 on IMDb, it's got an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I've gone bang in the middle with an 8 out of 10. I thought it's very solid and intriguing film. Uh, let me just say up top, the title sets it up. It's a story based around characters in 1960s Hollywood, like other Tarantino. This is a Quentin Tarantino film, if you if you want to wear. Um, like other Tarantino films, there are elements of real life in there, but events have been altered, and I think that's fine because it's a story. It never promises to be a true reenactment. It's never based on true events or based on a true story. It never has any of that. It just sort of takes place in this 
almost parallel world where where things cross over and history happens like in glorious bastards where they kill hitler at the end it's it's the same sort of thing like that that obviously didn't happen in that way and this didn't happen in this way but it's it makes for an interesting film um so it's got two great lead performances from leonardo dicaprio and brad pitt um brad pitt exudes cool as he often does in his roles um and dicaprio um is given a great platform to to perform um like he shows the inner turmoil of a man who comes to realize that he's that he might be past it but he's still trying to cling on to the hope that he's not and there's just some brilliant scenes where he's playing the bad guy in this new tv show and he has to and he has a heart to heart with an eight-year-old girl who's also kind of acting and and he's also trying to prove himself on that show and like you see some bad takes and then his reaction and how he comes back from that and it's just it's just terrific work it's really good um so many of what i found is that well, I think everyone, it's fair to say that many of Tarantino's films are a little self-indulgent. Um, and I think there's like a lack of depth of character and they often revolve around kind of nonsensical happenings, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, sometimes you want to just like switch off and just enjoy whatever's happening on screen. and But sometimes it doesn't make for the most interesting of films. But this is very much not that every scene feels it's there for a reason there's like a deliberate build of suspense throughout the film which reaches a peak at the right time and it pays off it doesn't feel dragged out like there's enough stuff that's drip thread throughout the runtime to keep you hooked and i think it's just a really good film like it's, you're really invested in the characters themselves there's layers to them you enjoy just kind of following their journeys and rooting for them like arguably you don't need to know all this 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 kind of backstory about them for the like the actual climax to make make an impact but i think it just makes for a more rounded film and a more interesting film like tarantino could very easily have just kind of made a film out the last 40 minutes and people would have liked it like i feel that would have been more of a typical tarantino film but i feel like it's maybe you would that but it's kind of more of the same and i think it's nice to see something different from him like, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of Tarantino in this. Like, the last 40 minutes, like I said, is kind of him at his best. But I think it works more because he's so, so sort of restrained and thoughtful throughout the rest of the film. You feel like he's earned it and you're like, yeah, just go on then. You, you go for it. And I think it just works. Uh, there's been talk that Tarantino had, like, a great fondness for the filmmaking of the 50s and 60s. And, like, maybe that's why it works so well. He's sort of, like, it's one of the things that annoys me in Tarantino films it's kind of the inane conversation about nothing and but like you but it seems like you give him a setting that he's passionate about and he's able to tone that down and put it to use like every conversation delves deeper into characters and their relationships careers past life and the use of cut into flashbacks or little mini scenes kind of works brilliantly and kind of help him flesh it out but also kind of keep it visually interesting um yeah, I think the, the typical kind of Tarantino tongue-in-cheek tone, my, that's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? The typical Tarantino tongue-in-cheek tone is never lost. Uh, like, despite ending with kind of a horrible event from the history of Hollywood and the unfortunate circumstances of the lead characters and kind of, like, not doing so well in their career, 
like the film kind of retains this kind of light-hearted nature to it and it kind of perfectly balances the sinister moments with the almost farcical tone that Tarantino's sort of known for. Um, there's also, as well as the kind of two main leads, there's loads of great supporting players, Margot Robbie, Al Pacino especially, and like Damien Lewis, Emil Hirsch, they're all sort of in there. Like There's even a cameo from regular collaborator Michael Madsen. Apparently there was supposed to be a Tim Roth cameo as well. And that was filmed, but it was cut. But he is actually still in the credits, funnily enough. But yeah, let's just get into some uh, some fun facts, shall we? Uh, the producers uh, of the film actually struggled to persuade Hollywood theatres to use the retro facades that they had from like the 60s uh, for the shoot. But afterwards, a lot of theatres were like, actually, can we, can we keep these? We kind of like this retro look. So uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, also, DiCaprio... Uh, found that he struggled to when uh, his character Rick Dalton was acting in stuff. Uh, he found it hard to act acting because Rick Dalton's supposed to have this sort of limited range, and obviously DiCaprio's an award-winning actor. And apparently, he had to kind of improvise, forgetting his lines, in order to sort of stay in character. Like he had to just go. Like there's a whole bit of like him kind of fluffing his lines and things, and he had to do that because otherwise he kind of would have done it the way that DiCaprio acts rather than the way that Rick Dalton would have acted. So I think that's, that's interesting. Uh, and also Kurt Russell is in this as well as Zoe Bell and they play uh, a stunt woman and stunt, stunt man, stunt woman duo that are working on the Green Hornet TV show, the one that Bruce Lee was in. Um, Kurt, which is funny because Kurt Russell uh, played a, the main character in Tarantino's Death Proof uh, called Stuntman Mike, and in that film, Zoe Bell was also in it, and she, as herself, as herself, a stunt woman, and uh, Zoe Bell has actually been a stunt woman in other Tarantino films, in like Kill Bill. So before, so she was in those sort of films, and then uh, Tarantino was like, "Yeah, we'll just put you in the film, like you can be an actor in it." But she played as herself, like she played a stunt woman in it, and with. Kurt Russell, which I thought was interesting, but yeah, I think overall it's it's a surprisingly restrained and tight Tarantino film, despite the runtime being over two and a half hours. And I, I just think it's well worth checking out. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it. I think it might even be. It's definitely up there for me for a Tarantino film, and I I was pleasantly surprised by it, if I'm honest. Uh, so yeah, uh, film numero dose of the week is one hour photo uh so this is about a photo printer with a with an unhealthy obsession with a perfect family uh who begins to involve himself in their lives it came out in 2002 had a 12 million dollar budget and he made 52 million so it's pretty pretty decent return uh, it's got a 6.8 on IMDb and 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. And again, I've gone down the middle with a 7 out of 10. Um, it's pretty. It's a pretty good, but it's kind of an unsettling look into a person's psyche. Uh, so Robin Williams is the lead in this, and he gives a stellar performance. It's his second atypical performance of the year, because he's also in Insomnia, which I covered a few weeks ago. Um, and it makes you sympathise with this lonely and troubled character, even though his actions are kind of questionable at best. Uh, it's a nice because it's set in two thousand. It's made in two thousand two, and obviously set in two thousand two. It's got this nice hit of nostalgia with the heavy use of film cameras and disposables. It's got 
a lot of interesting shots to show how like the printing works and kind of how developing the pictures works, which is I thought was quite fascinating. Um, the start kind of I thought maybe ruined it slightly because it shows Williams's character in an interrogation room, but it kind of it circles back around to it at the end and it does make use of the scene. Um, speaking of kind of circling back around it, it's quite a short runtime, but I think it works well because like. You could have written. You could easily have written in kind of more happenings to fill out a longer runtime, but I don't think it needs to. It kind of gets everything across in the short time, in the year and a half that it is. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's a pretty good. It's pretty well paced in, in my opinion. Um, there's also kind of a, a lots of little like interesting narration that helps to explain Williams' passion, Williams's character's kind of passion for photography. And also partly his obsession with kind of keeping certain photos, especially of of the family. Um, also, there's kind of a couple of like imagined scenes that kind of really flesh out what his character really wants. And it's it's really creepy when you're watching it, but it's also really sad. And like there's one point, because obviously when you're going into those scenes, you don't necessarily know that they're imagined. And so there was one point where I was like, oh, my heart's pounding, like just... It got me really tense, but then you realize it's in his head and you're like, oh, and like, it's just, it's, I don't know. It's very kind of, yeah, you, you were almost like sympathizing him with him at times, even though he is this weird kind of creepy man. Um, the ending is kind of a bit ambiguous and it does leave you with a few questions. Like I, I went straight to Google pretty much straight, like afterwards and because it, it kind of annoyed me a little bit at first, but when I looked into it a bit more, I looked into kind of other people's opinions and theories, I kind of really appreciate kind of what they did and leaving it ambiguous. Because it's, when you think, when I thought about it for a little bit, it was kind of like less about whether kind of the, the end, the, the kind of final kind of scenes of the film happened or not. It was less about whether it was, it really happened or whether it was in his head. It was more, that that that's what he was thinking because in a way this whole film is it's it's basically a character study and it's all about robin williams's character and speaking of the character i feel like it really makes or breaks the film i touched on it earlier but robin williams just really takes this kind of relatable everyman and that that people like enjoy seeing and like they they're happy to see out and about and he just gives them these layers and depths that kind of simultaneously freak you out but almost kind of endear you to him like you get to see like what little life he has but how much he cares about what he does with that that life um i mean he's just such a complex character like it's it seems sometimes he's like the antagonist but other times he's the protagonist and you're like you're not sure whether to root for him or not but yeah i, I like it's just a, a really interesting kind of take on on it all really um, but yeah, let's get some interesting facts. Um, so there is a, there's an action. So uh, Robin Williams' character works at kind of a uh, the photo. Like, I was going to say photo booth. It's like the photo desk of uh, like a supermarket. And in the in the supermarket, uh, this kid's gone around and there's a, and he picks up an action figure. And the action figure is actually from the anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I've heard of, and apparently he's good, but. I'm not an anime guy, really. Um, but yeah, and uh, that was apparently in the film at 
Robin Williams' own request. Apparently, he's a big fan, and the toy featured apparently was uh, his own from his own collection. So yeah, it's an interesting little tidbit. Apparently, yeah, Robin Williams was a big fan of the anime. Apparently, well, especially that one. Um, uh, there's also a scene where. Uh, Robin Williams' character is talking about other kind of typical customers that he gets some regulars and one of them is an old lady who you just has pictures of cats um, and in order to get kind of more natural looking photos um, instead of uh, kind of staging like the like animals that, that are hired to act in a way they just got casting crew to bring in photos of their cats so then you got more natural looking photos. Well, I just thought it was a great idea. It's pretty, I mean, it's probably a lot easier as well uh, and saves on cost. But yeah, um, and also when it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, Robin Williams was really proud because he overheard people uh, talking about it and saying that they forgot that it was him 15 minutes into the film, which I think is great because obviously you didn't, you you. Because I think as an actor, that's what they want. They want you to be lost in the character and forget the actual actor themselves. Um, yeah, speaking of actors themselves, Agent Phil Coulson of the MCU's in this. I don't think I've ever really seen him in anything outside of the MCU. But yeah, he's in it. He's he was in a film. He plays a he plays a cop. He has a few speaking lines. Uh, like ten years before you get to see him as in the Avengers, which I thought was interesting. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, it's very good film. It's a very interesting film, and it's it's a very interesting lead character, and I think it's well worth a watch, really. Um, yeah, so a good couple of films so far. The third and final film is uh, when I finally got round to getting it to work uh, with my TV. Oh, um, it's only God forgives. Um, so this is an about an American criminal in Thailand who gets drawn into a feud with a fearsome cop when his mother demands revenge for his brother's death. Um, it came out in 2013. It had a $5 million budget, so the lowest of the week, and it made $11 million, so okay, I guess. So usually you're, you're looking at trying to get twice the amount of budget because you've got production and marketing. Um, the only really quote production, um, but... Marketing basically the same as well, so you double it. So it's it's made a million dollars potentially, uh, maybe slightly more. Maybe the marketing is slightly less than five million. But yeah, um, but this has kind of got mixed reviews. It's got a five point seven on IMDb and a forty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But I give it a seven out of ten. I thought it's a pretty decent film and it's got a very distinct style. Um, so this is. Uh, director Nicholas Winding Refn's first film after his breakout film Drive, um, which also stars Ryan Gosling in the lead role. And similar to Drive, it sticks with the sort of neon-soaked visuals and the somber, almost silent protagonist, but it's very different. Um, so Drive had this sort of intense main character in the sort of fairly normal world. Um, but this whole film has the same intensity as the driver does. So rather than it just being one character, it's like every single character and the, even the world is basically like that. Um, but there's a large portion of this film that doesn't even have dialogue. And 
there's just a lot of people looking at each other, which, um, I don't know. I think it works. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It does slow the film right down, though. And even though the runtime's only an hour and a half, you can be forgiven for thinking it's longer. Um, which I think is an impress. Like, you could say it's dragging and stuff, but I feel that to take a film that's an hour and a half and make it feel like it's got so much in there and it's it's made a slow burn that it it just kind of shows the techniques I think and it shows how effectively the time is managed. Um, but yeah, I mean, like. I do like I. I seem to be praising this film a lot so far, but I do think that Ryan Gosling's main character isn't particularly compelling. Uh, he spends a lot of the time in this film as a passenger. Like he j- he doesn't really do much. There's a lot. There's multiple scenes of his mother berating him and comparing him to his brother, and you could sort of see why. Like like when he finally does do something, and you feel that you're gonna get this sort of hyper-violent drive character that he he doesn't do that and he actually gets his ass kicked. Like, there are some other scenes where he is violent and it's mentioned multiple times how violent he can be, but it's not really seen much. Like, this is a a very slight spoiler. It doesn't doesn't affect anything at all, but, like, it's referred to that he killed his dad. And I feel like maybe, like, even just a snapshot, like a split-second thing of, like, him full rage mode or something would have been like would have been been more effective when it had the impact and you would be like oh yeah this guy is kind of violent but you don't really see that that much um yeah as with one hour photo there are a few instances where you're not quite sure if the scenes are imagined or if they're actually happening though kind of when you think about it it does sort of make sense which is which like it's because it, it's one of those films that's like really interesting because there's so much meaning behind everything and you like it kind of encourages you to what to to think about the film as a whole and to kind of think about how certain bits of information that you find out later on kind of ref, will affect like or like how it kind of is reflected in the earlier kind of scenes um yeah so like like once you find, like once you find out more about his past and see his relationship with his mother and kind of his actions, like you get more of an idea of kind of what's going on and why things are playing out in a certain way. There's a specific scene that involving his mother that is very strange and odd that people who have seen the film will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but again, even though it's such a weird scene, it takes us such a weird and dark turn i feel that once you contextualize it it does make sense sort of um but yeah speaking but of course this is uh what is a film without an antagonist and the antagonist in this the cop is a force to be reckoned with he's supposed to represent god um and you can definitely see like the old testament stuff coming out like everyone fears him and he's dealing out punishment without remorse like, he's such a good... And I feel like he's such a good foil for Gosling because he's basically the opposite of Gosling. Like, he's making the moves, he's calling the shots, he's the alpha that dominates, whereas Gosling's sort of scared and trying to stay out of it. And, like, you you see that in some of the early scenes. Um, like, it is, like, this is definitely not a pleasant film to watch. It's But I feel like it's, it's so good, though, because it's so fascinating 
and it's just so interesting to talk about like there's so much to it and there's so many different opinions and views on it it's just right for discussion also there's even some time for some thai karaoke like it's bafflingly weird because it just takes it so seriously like everything in this film is so 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 serious even even the karaoke is really intense it's just as intense as the fight scenes it's crazy but it works in a way like you oh it's so weird but i think for some people it's one of those things that like it's it's either going to work for you or it's not it seems to be one of those divisive sort of things nicholas winning reference in general seems to be kind of quite divisive in the way that he film in in his films um i've seen a few of them so so i've seen bronson with tom hardy that he did in like 2008 i thought that was brilliant uh that was that was nuts but it was brilliant drive is obviously a, a terrific film that's probably his most sort of accessible film uh there's this which i i quite liked a lot um it took me a while to sort of like get into it but so i think I, I enjoyed it more towards the end and i think the fact that it took me so long to try and get it to work on my tv put it at a bit of a disadvantage as well um and also i saw the neon demon which is about like fashion models and had like cannibalism and necrophilia in it and that was a bit too weird for me i think um it was all right but it was about fashion and stuff and it was just a bit mm, i don't know it's not it's not it was it was one of the weirdest films that i'd ever seen anyway it's the worst still is um but yeah, uh, let's let's get on to some little facts. So in order to get permission and protection to film at night, because this was filmed and made in Thailand, um, some local authorities had to be paid off. Um, and Nicholas Winning Refn and Ryan Gosling, who actually was executive producing as well, um, they were invited to a film festival in Thailand and they were given $90,000 in cash to use, presumably from the kind of studios and whatever. And Nicholas winning Refn hadn't actually seen that much money in real life. And so he'd like, was just enjoying counting that out in cash. Um, but yeah, and then that was used to, to pay off, to bribe the local authorities to protect them. And apparently some of that protection involved firing gunshots. So I don't know whether that's just a stay out of this area sort of thing, or whether there was actually some trouble. I don't think so. I don't think there would be any. But yeah, no, what? You never know. You never know. Um, uh, Nicholas, the director Nicholas Winding Refn he also wrote it as well and he got the uh, idea for this film uh, during his wife's second pregnancy he was like really angry and he felt kind of this anger and violence in him and he kind of needed some way to get rid of it and I don't know he kind of was feeling very existential at the time and he was thinking about all these problems and how the person that would have the answers to this is God and he just imagined having a physical fight with god like who kind of manifested all these problems and solutions and whatever um so yeah and that's how it started um the lead uh so ryan gosling's character was actually originally going to be british uh and luke evans from the hobbit and beauty and the beast was actually going to be uh the lead role um but a scheduling conflict meant that he couldn't do it and so the role was changed to be american and ryan gosling signed on for it and we got the film that we have today. Um, but yeah, overall, it's a really intriguing. Uh, it's definitely got a style, but I think it's also got a substance to back it up. Um, though I do accept that it's clearly not everyone's cup of tea, but I would love to talk about it more. 
air with people because there's so much to pick apart with it. Um, but yeah, that is it for Alpha Set today. We will come back next week to look at Set P. Um, and uh, yeah, I never mentioned that if uh, you follow me on Twitter, you will you will find out the uh, the films that I will be covering each week. Uh, put that out on Monday. So if uh, you were following my Twitter account on Monday, you will have seen the films that I have covered, and you may have watched them uh, already with me, which is is great. If not, don't worry, because I've uh, not really spoiled anything for you. So hopefully, you can either go and watch those films because I think they're three really good films this week. But uh, yeah, it's up to you whether you do or not watch them. Uh, but yeah, well, let's move on. <laughs> So, the next segment of the show is, of course, a film that wasn't. This is where I just talk about a a film that uh, was lost to the history books, um, never to see the light of day, um, for one reason or another. Um, and this week, we are looking at The Defective Detective. I'm going to take my jumper off, because I have gone very warm. Oh, it's raining outside as well. Um, so, in 1991, I want to take you back to a year before the greatest year in history, 1991. Um, I say that because I was born in 1992. Um, but yeah, in 1991, Terry Gilliam, uh, the former Python, so former member of the Monty Python group, um, he released the acclaimed film The Fisher King, starring... Robin Williams, who we talked about earlier. Um, it went on to perform reasonably well at the box office and it gained good reviews. And so after this success, he wanted to re-team with the Fisher King writer, Richard, I'm going to butcher this name, Richard Lagravenes. 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 I quite like the idea of calling Lagravenes, though. Uh, but I think I think Lagravenes is probably closer. Um, but yeah, and he wanted to work with him on the next project, uh, The Defective Detective. Um, Gilliam said that the script started from me going into my files, my drawers, and digging out all the bits I cut out of uh, his previous films like Brazil and Munchausen and everything else I'd ever done. It's going to be a kind of a compendium. That's the idea on this one. Um, and so in 1993, Gilliam struck a deal with Paramount to get the film on the road. Uh, but Gilliam said he was groveling and begging and humiliating myself in order to get the film greenlit. The qualms, what is that word? The qualms, uh, the qualms about this were about the usual thing that films, qualms about films usually are about, and that is money, money, money. Um, but the issue wasn't that it was too much money. The issue was that Gillian was asking for just $25 million and the studio, Paramount, didn't think that he'd be able to get this done with just $25 million. Uh, Gillian said that we thought we got it to the point where it could be made. We had Nick Nolte, we had Danny DeVito lined up, we got the budget down, we had meetings and it seemed to be yes, then nothing. Once again, I found myself in the middle of the sale of a studio. Viacom were trying to buy Paramount, and all their energies were being focused on that. Uh, so yeah, it's obviously not the first time that G- 
Gilliam has been involved uh, in some sort of production halting due to sales, um, which is just unfortunate. Um, so years went by, uh, and Gilliam struggled to get the film off the ground and onto the screen. He then turned to other projects um, in order to kind of get himself some work, I guess. Um, and that included 12 Monkeys that came out in 1995. Haven't seen it, um, but I have seen the TV show, and the TV show was fantastic. Um, anyway, uh, off the back of another very successful Hollywood film uh, with 12 Monkeys, Gilliam had another crack at the Defective Detective, which, can I just say, is a brilliant name. And it needs to be made just for this. It should be made just for the name alone. Anyway, um, but this time he'd managed to get more of a cast together, including the star of his recent outing, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, of course, played the lead James Cole in 12 Monkeys. But Bruce Willis wasn't going to be the main star in this film. The main star in this film was going to be, and arguably in his prime, Nicolas Cage. Um, but... In 1997, there was still no progress on production. Gilliam said Nicolas Cage is down to be the lead, but the studio says, what's the genre? It's the same Terry and Gilliam movie, but stretched brigger and brasher, and so they panic. 12 Monkeys made $165 million, but Hollywood is about perception, not reality, and I'm perceived as the rebel, the troublemaker. I'll wait them out, but if I can't do this one, with Nick and my last success... I will walk away from Hollywood. I've spent too long trying to deal with this place. But by the end of the 90s, it didn't happen. And Gilliam went on to direct the cult favourite Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas after being gifted the job um, due to another director dropping out. But I hear you ask, what is this defective detective that Gilliam's so passionate about? Well... It follows a middle-aged, burnt-out New York cop on the verge of a nervous breakdown and his investigation into a missing child that draws him into a fantasy world of floating trees and knights on horseback. I mean, it definitely sounds interesting, and the combination of Gilliam and Cage would definitely turn the weird factor up to 11. Uh, Le Gravenise, the writer, said, I remember Terry saying to me, well, I've done what I'd do in your world when he did The Fisher King. Now let's see if you can do what you do in my world. It's a much, much, much more Gilliam-esque world than the Fisher King. Um, but yeah, since then, it, it's been brought up in interviews with Gilliam, with the answer always being along the lines of just trying to see if we can update it and make it work. But in more recent years, Gilliam has mentioned about the possibility of it becoming a TV series after regaining the rights from Paramount in 2015. Uh, Gilliam said, we've been talking and seeing if it would be better to extend it and make it into six-hour segments, um, and really let it breathe a bit. I'm ultimately pragmatic, and I will go where I can go. Look at what happened with HBO. The writing from America in the cable networks is the best. It may be where I end up. Um, it's the most likely place for a series or film to release now would, or at the time, would have been Amazon Prime Video after Gilliam signed a day at after Amazon's after Gilliam signed a deal um, with Amazon Studios around the same time so in 2015 but since then his latest film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote that came out in 2018 um, and was actually in development for 29 years um, that was actually scheduled to be released on Amazon streaming service but 
they found that avenue closed after an issue with rights. Um, so, I mean, if there is, there is still a possibility that if the defective detective were to go into production now, and if the deal with Amazon Studios is still in place, which I'm not quite sure it is, um, that that's where it could end up. But it seems after all this year, these years, Gilliam doesn't really care how or where his passion project sees the light of day, just that it does. Uh, he just wants to get the thing made, goddammit. Um, and you know what? I do too. Um, because if nothing else, it sounds like it'd be an intriguing spectacle. And especially if they do it as a TV series, TV right now is arguably in the best possible place for weird and wacky concepts. You've got these little-known comic books getting adaptations, and then you've got, they brought back The Godfather's a weird TV and Twin Peaks and The Twilight Zone, and then you've got offbeat religious books being given the screen treatment. I mean, anything's possible for possible right now. I mean, it, it wouldn't it's not necessarily got the same star power behind it. Like, you, you could have had Nicolas Cage, Bruce Willis, Danny DeVito, all these sorts of actors in it, but, um, yeah, unfortunately... They didn't go with it, but I would definitely be here for it now if someone decided to give Gilliam the $25 million that he needs. Probably it will be way more than that now, but I would definitely be down for it. Um, it does sound like a bit of a, a weird one, um, but it almost sounds a bit like it could be like a Hoover and Roger Rabbit sort of thing, which would be kind of fun, I think. Um, but yeah, let us move on to... The final section of the show. And that section is... Quick Vic. Uh, for those that aren't aware, this is where I take one of 20 film franchises and I take one of 20 film characters and I put them in said franchise and try and make a prequel, sequel, spin-off or a reboot of them. Um, in the So last week we had a... Sequel to Aliens with Ethan Hunt. We've had Mad Max in a spin-off of Pirates of the Caribbean. We've had um, Buzz Lightyear in a spin-off of uh, Indiana Jones. And we've had uh, Hannibal Lecter in Star Trek. But let's see uh, what we get this week. First of all, we need to find out what kind of film we're making. And that kind of film is a prequel. We're making a prequel to... Pirates of the Caribbean. We're going back to the Black Pearl. And we're going to make a prequel with E.T. We're making a prequel to Pirates of the Caribbean with E.T. Well, my first thought is either Goofy Side Character or my other thing is... So, a lot of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, they have what... Is known in the biz as a MacGuffin. Uh, so that's usually like a, a just an object or something or a person that the plot sort of revolves around. So in the first film, they had uh, like the Aztec gold. Um, the second film, they had the Shed Man's chest. The third one, uh, it, I think it's the same thing, that Davy Jones' heart, I think. Uh, the fourth one, there was the Fountain of Youth. The fifth one, who cares anymore? Um, but yeah, they, they all seem to have these sort of uh, MacGuffins. And I feel that E.T. could be a MacGuffin. This extraterrestrial that... Like, 
you've got like these films are so weird and wacky. You've got Kraken, you've got Merm like Demon Mermaids, you've got uh Fishmen Dead Fishmen, you've got Dead Skeleton Men, like you've got dead ghostly creatures that walk on water, like you've got a giant sorcerer witch woman, like you've got all these weird and wacky things. Putting an ET in there, I don't think is that bad. I mean, you could put him in there and keep the character of E.T. and you just make him some weird, weird creature, that weird sea creature rather than a, uh, rather than an alien. You don't, you don't need to necessarily like, I think the assumption would be that he is some sort of sea creature because you're not going to go, oh, we're watching Pirates of the Caribbean and we'll go, oh yeah, uh, they got an alien in this because that would make sense. But if you just put the character of E.T. in there, um, without knowing necessarily what E.T. was, then you could definitely get that, and it definitely wouldn't be out of place. He's got his weird, like, Healy finger thing, so he could do that. He always wants to go home, so maybe part of it is that somebody's trying to take him home. Uh, you want to... I don't know, maybe... You know, it's a prequel, right? So maybe you'll have a Jack Sparrow prequel where a young Captain Jack Sparrow encounters this creature and uh, before he decided to get all drunk and not care about stuff, uh, it's like an almost a Mandalorian sort of thing. He's like, uh, from the TV show The Mandalorian, where he's escorting this creature that doesn't talk a lot and has a bit of a weird... And is a, is a funny little goofball. He's uh, just... Uh, with special powers he's just escorting this to wherever he's going he's just he's escorting him home to some sort of ship um and yeah i think that'd be fun i think that'd be i think that'd be class i'd be i'd be well up for seeing that and there's some other maybe some other weird you could you could make any of these weird let's have some more like weird death dead men thing dead men people what else could you do you've had fish ones you've had skeleton ones you've had like weird ethereal wishy-washy ghosty things i don't know what else can you do um i don't know we've had like almost vampire mermaids why don't we have um like i was gonna say it's, it's gotta be sea though isn't it because i was gonna say why don't you have like werewolves because you've almost had like vampire things the only thing you've not had. maybe you have like uh what kind of era is this? Is this like Victorian era sort of things? Maybe you have like steampunky mechanical side, mechanical people. I think that's that's another thing that you could do. Maybe let's try that. Let's try mechanical people, like a like a Wild Wild West sort of thing, because everybody loves that film. I like that film. It's good fun. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be fun. I think that is the way to go for me personally. Um, you make him a MacGuffin, and he's a little uh, character that, that gets escorted back to his ship. Because that's basically what he, the film E.T. is. It's him wanting to get home, and then there's just sort of misadventures and mishaps. And so I think that, that it perfectly lends itself to that. And you put him, you pair him with a Captain Jack Sparrow, who just is turning steadily crazier, possibly. Uh, maybe he's mid. Maybe he's already gone off the rails. Maybe he's not quite off the rails yet. Um, but I think if you pair him with pair them together, I think that'll be make for a very fun film. And you put in some 
I'm making this. I'm, I've added this in, but you you make some mechanical men. Boom, we're going. We're off and running. Um, because someone else wants him. Some government person or something wants, or some smuggler or big pirate person wants wants ET for his healy powers. I think that's a boom. We're done. I think that'd be be quality stuff. Um, ET does have healy powers, right? I'm not just thinking that up. He does. He has his glowy finger, and then it heals people. He heals things, doesn't it? I haven't watched ET in a long time. Um, maybe I don't know. Who knows? Um, but yeah, if you did do that, then then Pirates of the Caribbean would be related to Star Wars as well. They'd all be in the same universe, which would be fun. Anyway, um, that's all we have time for this week. Um, thank you very much for listening once again. If you would. Uh, like to get in touch then you can do at uh, by email uh, at outlook.com or on Twitter at AllOutWalker and if you follow me on Twitter you will as mentioned be able to find out what films I'm covering for set P um, next week I will put them up on Monday I haven't decided what I'm doing yet um, you will know as soon as I do um, but yeah if you'd love to talk about any of these films uh, that we talked about this week, Defective Detective or Only God Forgives or anything, or you'd like to talk some DC Fandome, um, then please do. I'd love to hear from you. And if you could and would like to leave a review on your platform of choice, um, that would be absolutely smashing. Obviously, five stars is the way to go. Um, if, you, if you're going to go one star, don't just, just, be, just be nice and don't bother. Or, or just give it a five. Just, it's not going to harm you. It's not going to harm you. It will only help me in the long run. Be a nice person. Don't be, you know, don't be a nasty person. Um, yeah. Um, I think that, that'll do it for about today. Um, I will, uh, as always, see you next week. And, uh, yeah, goodbye. Thank you. Bye.